Good morning, everyone. I'm Karen Bow, and today's reading from the Bible is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Well, that's the first half of Ephesians 1. Now, that may have sounded like a whole lot of theology packed in a very dense passage, but what we've just heard read is in fact a symphony of praise. I don't know if you know much about symphonies. I don't. I could have learnt a lot about symphonies. My dad was a guy who loved classical music and he'd play it full bore on the weekend when he was at home. And the effect of that was not to educate me. No, it drove myself and my siblings out of the house into the bush in uh, suburban Sydney where, where we lived. When we got out, however, I was educated about symphonies, a symphony of the bush. You see, growing up in Sydney's um, suburbs near the bush in, in, um, in summer, uh, we'd go outside and we'd be confronted with a whole symphony of cicadas. They, they, tens of thousands of them every summer, they'd spent years underground and then they come out and just for a few short days, they go to the trees and they rub their wings together and they get so excited. It was deafening. It was absolutely deafening. If there were a whole line of gum trees, you'd have tens of thousands in them and you'd stand back from them, from the gum trees, and you'd hear the sound sort of move through in waves. It was a symphony of praise from the bush. Well, what we've just heard is a symphony of praise. Uh, Paul could have written down a very dry theological treatise, but he doesn't. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then theology, yes, that's its content, but it's, it's expressed in praise. Here is a symphony that is really worth listening to, and we're meant to get caught up in it. It's meant to resonate. This is meant to become our music, our song. Why? Three reasons. Number one, 
This is a continual symphony, right? Now, when do you erupt in praise? It might be when you see your AFL team just get over the line just before uh, the end of the final quarter uh, when the horn goes. And then there's the euphoria is ecstatic, isn't it? The praise is just great, but it only lasts a moment. Well, here is a continual symphony that people still sing. It resonates with us deeply. So there's continuation. Okay. Secondly, because of the height of praise. That word praise in verse 3 is used only of God in the New Testament and used not of anyone else. Okay. So whatever praise we offer in our lives, there is none higher than this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the other reason why this symphony is worth listening to is because of its content. This is a symphony which outlines wonderful things, but it climaxes in God's grand plan. And when we get to that, it ignites our hearts. And I think we need this. You know, um, not many of us really are people of praise that often, not continually. You know, um, we don't naturally overflow with praise of God because we fail to understand the glories of God and we prayed, we failed to understand the majesty of his plans. And consequently, you know, not surprisingly, we plod through life fairly aimlessly with nothing really satisfying. Okay, well, here's a symphony that takes us to a finale which describes God's great plans for the universe. I'm not some music expert, but my goal today is that we would hear this symphony and we would know it and it would become part of us because it resonates so deeply and we would be people of praise. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to hear this music. We want to hear the deep truths of it. We want it to echo in our lives and in our hearts. We want to feel the majesty of the things you're talking to us about and we pray that you'd help us by, by uh, your spirit and in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. In the web, on the web, you can look up Symphony for Dummies. I did it, and it tells me there are four movements to a symphony. Allegro, that's the first one, the brisk and lively opening. Second one, Adagio, this is a slower and more lyrical movement. Then the third one, Scherzo, this picks up a pace, it's a dance. And the finale, the fourth one, is the rocking finishing. Okay, Paul's symphony has four movements. His opening movement, allegro, brisk and lively, is described in verses 1 and 3. So he introduces himself, he introduces his recipients. Paul, an apostle, that's someone who's sent by, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people, God's saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And then in a snapshot, next he describes what's been given. He says, grace and peace to you. And this is what God gives us. Grace, God's ongoing, undeserved favour. And peace. Um, this is not a, just a meaningless word. This is to be standing in a restored relationship with God where we flourish and where we thrive and where God's universe is the way it is meant to be. Grace, peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And now the music swells because here is the fanfare introduction, verse 3. 
Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, that word praise, it's only ever used of God. God is worthy of praise and sustained praise because verses 3 to 10 actually is one long sentence in the original language, meaning verses 3 to 10 is one densely packed oration of praise where one magnificent idea tumbles down to the next one, but there's a logic there, there's a sequence because it sweeps us up and it carries us to the finale. Now, the motives that will be carried are all personal to us because we read, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. The heavenly realms, that's where we're blessed. Now, we might think, I want to be blessed on earth. No, the heavenly realms is the place that counts. This is where God is. This is where Jesus is. This is where our identity, our true identity is uh, formed, where it counts. Uh, This is the place where things really matter. Okay, and at that place in the heavenly realms, we, in Christ Jesus, have been given every spiritual blessing. Okay, the point is, we have it all. We have it all. Every single one. Every blessing that counts. Every blessing that we need. Every blessing that makes a difference. Every blessing that gives us security. That gives us status. That connects us to God and to all the wonders of his goodness to us. We have it all. And we have it now. The British pop band Queen um, had a song I want it all. And the refrain went, I want it all. I want it all. I want it now. Paul is saying here that in Christ, we have it all. We have it all. And we have it now. And we ask, how? How do we have it now? And the answer is, in Christ. In Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We have it in Christ. What's that talking about? It's talking about our union with him. You see, when you, or, when you or I or anyone else puts our faith in Jesus, we come bound to him, become bound to him in faith. His righteous life counts for us. His death counts for us. His, um, his death and then resurrection to life uh, counts for us. It's like we've died in him. We've risen in him. Um, Our lives cannot be seen apart from him by God. And so we shouldn't think of ourselves as apart from him. Everything we have, every precious gift from God comes to us in Christ because of him. Okay, so verse 4, God chose us in him. Verse 5, we're adopted to sonship through Jesus Christ. Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 9, God's will and pleasure were purposed in Christ. Verse 13, we were included in Christ. And verse 2 describes uh, the Christians, the saints in Ephesus, as being the faithful in Christ Jesus. The key refrain, the key words that keep popping up in this symphony are these little words, in Christ. Everything that we have comes to us from God through him. Uh, everything we have is found in him. He is the integrating centre, the one in whom everything, all our blessings, all our identity is found. Who we are is because of 
because of him and our identity is found in him. Now, if we fail to see that, we won't be swept up in this symphony. It will be for someone else. It won't be for us. But because we love Jesus and everything comes to us through him and in him, when we read this, this resonates. And it's great. You grasp this, the symphony will resonate and will fill you with praise because we'll own it. This will be our anthem, our symphony. Okay, so there's the quick and lively introduction to our symphony of praise. This is the first movement, Allegro. Now Paul takes us through the spiritual blessings that are ours in the heavenly realms that we're blessed with in Christ. And the first two are election and adoption. And just as the next movement in a symphony is the adagio, a slower, more lyrical movement in verses four to six, we slow down. The massiveness of what's spoken of slows us down and fills us with awe. Praise God. Why? Because, verse 4, God chose us in him, in Christ Jesus, before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, that should pop your eyeballs. That is a astounding thing. What are we talking about? The first spiritual gift, election. Now, sometimes when we hear of this word, um, and the idea of God choosing some, we then think, well, God, if he chooses some, he doesn't choose others, and it gets us offside. Can I just say that if you're thinking that, right, uh, you have just lifted the record needle off the symphony that's been playing and you've put on something entirely different, maybe like Icelandic death metal music or something like that, which strikes such a discordant note compared to what you've been hearing. Um, Because... What we've been hearing has been a movement of praise and you've now just shifted. You see, if we think of election and we end up judging God, how could you really not choose everyone? And if we think of election and we end up damning God, I wouldn't do that if I was God. We are not listening to Paul's tune anymore. Paul's tune is one of praise and we need to stop and we need to take our direction from the Bible itself. You see... When election is spoken of in the Bible, the result is to engender praise in God's people. Not judgment of God, not damning of God, but praise of God. Deuteronomy chapter 7, God himself does this. He says, you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession." The Lord didn't set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the earth that he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and redeemed you. Now, the wonderful thing about hearing that passage from Deuteronomy 7 is that God himself gives us the right perspective. Um, Israel didn't deserve to be chosen, and neither do any of us. You know, Israel wasn't the biggest, the most impressive nation that would just be really good for God if he had them on his team. No, no, no. Neither are us. It's not like God looks through time and chooses the best looking, the most competent, the most able people to be on his team. 
In Ephesians 2, it talks about what we were like before we were Christians. Um, before we were Christians, we were dead in transgressions and sins. We were, by nature, objects of wrath. Okay? It is a massive kindness of God that he chose any of us in Christ Jesus. And to think that he did it before the creation of the world, that he had our names in mind, blows your mind, doesn't it? The right response when we speak of election is to praise God, to praise God. Now, what did he choose us for? He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This implies that at one time in our lives we were not holy and we were not blameless. And if we panic and think, well, if the reason why we're chosen is to be holy and blameless, but uh, how can we really be holy? How can we really be blameless? Because who amongst us can say that we are really without sin? The relief to us is that we are chosen in Christ Jesus, right? It is he, the sinless one, who makes us holy and blameless in God's sight. We are chosen not because of us, but because of him. His righteousness, his sinlessness, his holy, blameless life counts for us and his death for our sins counts for us. And this gives us standing with God. This makes us useful to God. And that's what the word holy means. It means to take something out of common use and to set it aside for God to be useful for him. All right. Now, so to be chosen by God, to be elected, to be holy and useful for God is a precious wonder. It's a precious wonder. Praise God. It is a spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. The next is adoption. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. You see, none of us are naturally born into God's family. Um, If we've been born into one family, the only way to enter another family as the son or daughter is to be adopted into it. And spiritually, this happens to us through Christ Jesus. We don't make it happen, God does. He predestines us to be adopted to sonship. And when he says sonship, by the way, Paul isn't being deliberately sexist here. In the first century, we know only sons could inherit the estate. Paul is saying that through Christ Jesus, we have been adopted as God's sons, as his heirs who inherit things. We, In other words, we have in Christ Jesus full status, full privilege, as his adopted sons, as first, the full status as a firstborn son. In other words, there's no higher status that we can have uh, in God's family. This is massive. It's absolutely staggering. So in Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, you hear what this is saying, right? We have purpose because God chooses us to be holy and we have status adopted to sonship. Purpose, status. Now, this is what most of us spend our whole lives trying to achieve, purpose and status. This is why we spend years getting an education, why we climb up the ladder at work, purpose, status. Okay, these are the things that God freely gives us in Christ Jesus, where it really matters. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to make us holy, Chosen to be holy, useful to God, purpose and status. 
um, adopted to be his sons. Okay, now the music we hear is beginning to change. The symphony is now stepping up a place. It's going to get more lively. We're moving from the slower second movement to its more lively third movement, scherzo, and this is designed to make us dance. And in verses 7 to 9, we, we see another two spiritual blessings which are added to the first two. Third one, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Recently, our family watched the movie Escape from Pretoria, a movie which stars Daniel Radcliffe of Harry Potter fame. It was filmed in Adelaide and there was a filmed uh, scene filmed in Curry Street in the city, uh, which my daughter Sally got to be an extra in. Uh, it's extremely cool, right? Okay, the whole movie, it's a true story and it's very, very tense. And it describes three men, uh, sorry, two men who were imprisoned in South Africa in jail in, when it was under apartheid and then three of them broke out and it's their plan to break out. You get a feel for what it's like to be in prison through the movie and how desperate you would be to become free. Well, in Christ Jesus, we have been set free. We have been redeemed. We have redemption. Redemption means to be set free through the payment of a price, not through breaking out of the jail, but through the payment of a price. The term redemption comes from the slave markets. Money is exchanged to set people free. But for our redemption, of course, it wasn't money that was the price. It was his blood, the precious blood of the sinless Son of God. Nothing less could have purchased our redemption from the condemnation that was due us. It wasn't, we're not set free from prison, right? We're set free from the condemnation, much worse, due us. But we're told in him we have the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness, the word, is the word to loose. Uh, we're, we're loosened. The, the debt against us is loosened and then it drifts away. Um, it's like if you could imagine all of the condemnation that was due us and all of our guilt just filled this sort of vat. And Jesus, through the payment of, his, of the price of his own blood, he pulls the plug on the vat and all of it drains down and it's taken away and out of sight and nothing's left. No condemnation, no guilt. It's just amazing to be set free from that and to know it. Imagine for a moment that this wasn't the case. Imagine you weren't redeemed. Imagine Jesus hadn't shed his blood for you. Okay, Imagine that against you stood a big list of every sin, every transgression deserving punishment. And the longer that you live, the longer gets the list, the greater the guilt, the greater the punishment that awaits. What are you going to do to lighten that list, to relieve yourself of the burden that's there? Well, you could try reforming your life, couldn't you? You're just stopping adding more guilt to it. But you're not getting rid of the list that's against you. So what do you do to get rid of the list, the condemnation and guilt? Do you, do you go into overdrive of being good to, to pay up for your guilt? Well, you can't. You can't pay for that. And even if you thought you could, even if you devise some sort of scheme um, of merits, right, to, to, op, to off, offset the accumulation of debt on this side, how do you know that such a scheme is going to be acceptable to God when he hasn't even said, yes, I'll accept that scheme? He hasn't. He hasn't said anything like that. It's a massive gamble at best. There is no such scheme. To have redemption, to have freedom from condemnation, to have forgiveness 
of sins and to know it. That is to be set free indeed. Now you add that third spiritual gift to the first two. Okay, so in Christ Jesus we have election, adoption, redemption, and now's the fourth one, revelation. We have knowledge of where God's plans are going. That is, we're not in the dark, right? First, the end of verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us. He revealed the mystery of his will. What on earth God is doing? He made it known according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Now, we're going to get to what that mystery is, what the purpose is. But here we're told that it's we who believe in Jesus, we who know what life's about, because it's to us that God has made it known. Now, again, the world is full of clever people, much cleverer than me, smart people, much smarter than you, right? But intelligence isn't wisdom. Um, In 1992, just after I finished university, I began work in the psychology department of the University of New South Wales. Okay, now don't blame me. Don't hold it against me. Okay, it was a recession. It was the only job I could get. That or being a bank teller in Canberra. So I took that one. All of a sudden, my lecturers, the people I'd sat under listening to their wisdom, okay, became my colleagues. And when I began to talk to them personally, which I'd never done before, I discovered that though they were extremely intelligent, though they were very smart, though they'd written lots of papers, they weren't wise. One of them, in a brutal moment of honesty, sat back in his chair in his office and said, well, I just exist. Another one uh, said to me, I don't know why we're doing this. You know, we labour for decades to try and get papers published with our names on them in an obscure area of science that only about three or four people are really interested in so that we can somehow make a name for ourselves when we know that that fame is just going to vanish into obscurity very quickly. They didn't know what life was about, and yet I did. I was was only 19. (laughs) True. Um, No, 21. Uh, But I knew what life was about. Why? Because God had told me, not because I was more clever, see, if you know Christ Jesus, if you're in him, you're not in the dark, okay? We don't have to spend our lives searching for meaning only to to discover at the end that we were wrong. We'd spend all our lives going down a blind path. What a tragedy that would be. We know it. We know what life's about because we know God's big plan for the universe because God has made it known. He's revealed it to us in Christ Jesus. In him we have revelation, right? Right? Now, with this, the music score changes. The symphony of praise is shifting from the third movement to the last one. This is the climax. This is the rollicking finale. Okay. Election, adoption, redemption, revelation, and now consummation. This is where all the spiritual blessings have been heading towards. Only those who are chosen, elected by God to be holy and blameless, adopted as his sons, redeemed from sin's guilt and condemnation, who will rejoice in God's revelation of God's ultimate blessing of where the plan is heading. And this is it. It's only we who'll get it, who'll understand it, and who'll be set ablaze by this. And this is where it's going. We'll only get it because we love Jesus, right? We know him. 
God's big plan is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Verse 10. Now, you have to be someone who appreciates Christ to see how wonderful this is. You see, it's not just that we're saying Jesus is great, he's worth following. It's not just that we're grateful that he saves us. It's that you understand that God's blessing of the world happens through him. He's the centre. He is what life is all about. He is the integrating centre of everything. So all that's wrong with the world, all the world's conflicts, all the world's pain, all the world's wars, creation's curse, that wrongness can unravel and find its alignment in him. This is God's great and wonderful plan. Only in him can everything come together. Only he who is Lord of the heavens and the earth can bring alignment to the heavens and the earth. Only he who died to tear down barriers between peoples that we keep putting up to say that we're different. Only he who died to bring them down can bring unity to people who are different. It happens in him. Only he who was raised from the dead can bring life in him to those who are perished or lost and give life to a cursed and dying universe. Only he can do what no religion can do, what no priest process can do. God's plan is to bring everything together in unity under him. And there's no one else who is more worthy of everything finding their unity in than the Lord Jesus Christ. Because no one else is worthy of worship as he is or worthy to be respected as he is or to be loved as he is. Okay. Unity in Christ is the theme of Ephesians. And over this term, we'll be unpacking what this means for us, which is a great idea as we're thinking about getting back together as a church or whether we're still meeting as a church online. But for now, it's enough to know this is God's plan for us. And it's enough to be captured for a moment by this symphony of praise. Because here is the thing. You see, this symphony is still ongoing. Um, It's still relevant. It still captures people's hearts. The music is still igniting people across the hills from Aldgate, Mount Barker, down the Flurio to Victor Harbour. God is capturing people's hearts with this symphony of praise. It still is our anthem. You might say that, I'm sorry about this, the hills are alive, to this sound of music. And this was the case in, in Ephesus as well. Verse 11, Paul says, you know, in him, Jesus, we also, Jewish believers, were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Verse 7, you also, you Gentile believers, were also included in Christ. For Jews and Gentiles, so different. This is our song. Okay, well, how do we become included in Christ? How does this happen? You know, just because someone's predestined doesn't mean that in their earthly life they are always in Christ. How do you become included in Christ? It happens at a point. How does it happen? When does it happen? Verse 13, it happens when you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In other words, people become alive to this symphony when they hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and when they accept it and they make him Lord, And then he becomes increasingly in their awareness, the centre of everything, and everything finds its alignment in him. 
And this song, this symphony captures their hearts. And it's their song and it stays with them. And that's the key to praise. Okay. Um, when we hear the gospel, that's when all the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection gets applied to us by the Holy Spirit. That's when everything that he's won for us now becomes true for us. Okay, this is when we know and own the blessings we have in the heavenly realms. And we think, well, how could this be true on earth? We're blessed in the heavenly realms. Okay, we're here. How does it happen and get applied to us through the gift of God's spirit? When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, signifying ownership. The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. This is God's gift, himself, his spirit. Now, to what end, to what goal? <clears throat> Verse 14, all this happens these gifts are given to us to the praise of his glory. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, for the praise of his glory. Now, I've sat through lots of teaching courses on Ephesians, which go through all the big doctrines, you know, election, adoption, redemption, revelation, consummation, the big words that end in shun. They completely miss that here is a symphony of praise. This is meant to capture us. It's meant to take us to heaven. This is meant to become part of us. This is our anthem that we can't help but sing with delight and praise to God for. This isn't a dry theological treatise. This unveils God's heart. In love, he predestines us to be adopted in accordance with his pleasure. To the praise of his grace, he's given us in the son he loves. Verse 7 speaks of the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. Right. And that's why, finally, it's not enough to be able to read the music score of this symphony, you know, to read through Ephesians 1 and see the spiritual gifts we have and be able to list them out. Next week, we'll get to the second half of chapter 1, where Paul praise that we would know them. We think, hang on, we already know them, don't we? We've read them. No, no, no. He wants us to know what we know. He wants us to believe what we believe. He prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know. He prays that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we would know. He wants us to deeply know it. In other words, he wants this symphony of praise to enter in, to ignite us, to change us, to transform us. He wants us to be part of the universe that comes under Christ and every part of us. That's why Paul sets out these truths, not as some dry theological textbook, but as a symphony, so that we'd see we're meant to praise God as well. I take it that's why God's given us the Holy Spirit, not just to give us assurance, but so through him we would anticipate the finale where everything is brought under Christ and we would long for it. But for now, we have praise to do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. We praise you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for blessing us in the heavenly realms with 
every spiritual blessing and you lay them on thick and we have purpose and we have status with you. We have freedom from condemnation. We have knowledge and we have Christ. And we pray that every part of our lives would increasingly find alignment and purpose and delight in him, as is your plan for the universe. Father, work in our church, churches over these, um, these weeks as we spend our time in Ephesians. May we become aligned with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.